Good morning. You know, I could get so used to this. This is so cool. I just, uh, I just, uh, just thank you for being here today. What a blessing it is. You know, it might have been King David's lowest moment of his entire life. His son Absalom had led a rebellion against him. <clears throat> and Absalom, he was kind of a charmer. And he had convinced many that David was too old and too ineffective to lead. And so Abelon stormed the city with his troops, and David and his army, they left out the back door from Jerusalem, and they vacated the palace. David had decided he would rather be humiliated than go against his own son. He didn't want to be involved in a bloody civil war against his family. But think about it, what a horrendous moment this must have been for David. He had been Israel's most celebrated king. And on the way out of Jerusalem, David must have thought, oh, it can't get any worse than this. But it did. A commoner by the name of Shimei was on the side of the road as he left uh, Jerusalem. And he was taunting David as he fled the city. Now, you should know this. It's not in the Bible, but it probably ought to be. Shimei was the Ernest T. Bass of the Bible. You know? Remember him? Much like Ernest T. Bass uh, in the old Andy Griffith show, Shimei was on the hillside throwing dirt clods and rocks and all this thing at the king and cursing him, saying things like, God is finally getting even with you for what you did to King Saul, you bloody traitor. Now, we think it's disrespectful for conservative public officials to be heckled during a speech, but this was so much worse. One of David's men stepped forward and said, let me go up and run this impudent coward through with the sword. And David's response was incredible. He said, no, don't kill him. Let him go. Maybe I'm getting what I actually deserve. Wow. Now, if that was the end of the story, what would we say about David? What an amazing, what a great man. He was. I mean, how magnanimous to forgive such an offense. And David was a great man. But that's not the end of the story, as we're going to see. The memory of that offense stayed with David. It festered in his mind for years. Listen to what David said on his deathbed. It's about a decade later. 1 Kings 2nd chapter, verses 8 and 9. David speaks his final words to his son Solomon. He said, remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Girah, the Benjamite from Bahurim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. And when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, do not consider him innocent. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. Whoa. And as far as we know, those were David's last words. The next verse says, David then rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Now this account from the pages of the Bible 
introduces us to this problem of releasing resentment. I mean, since the very first of the year, what we've been doing is looking at the New Testament book of Corinthians and specifically chapter 13, the love chapter. But we've been talking about how do you love your neighbor as yourself? And verse 5, as my brother read just a moment ago, the Lord does not keep a record of wrong. Now, in the Greek language, the word used here is, is an accounting term. It's a word for entering an item into like a ledger so it will never be forgotten, to be marked down for posterity. Paul, Paul is saying here that love does not keep a record of offenses. Love doesn't harbor a grudge. But as William Barclay wrote, that is exactly what some people do. Many of them do. They nurse their wrath to keep it warm. They brood over the wrongs done to them until it's impossible to forget them. Now, I want you to understand there's a difference between anger and resentment. Anger blows up pretty fast, pretty immediate. But resentment kind of simmers over a period of time. Most of us would acknowledge a problem with anger. But resentment is a, is a less respectable a more subtle kind of problem. In fact, resentment is probably more dangerous. Resentment is like an undetectable cancer that just eats away at your own personality and destroys your relationships. And like David leaving Jerusalem, most of us have had a shimei in our life that kind of hurled insults or wounded us from the sidelines. Some of you can recall things that were said to you as a child or maybe on a playground. Maybe you were a good student and you can never forget how the jocks and the athletes and all that bunch made fun of your lack of athletic skills. It's always been my problem. Or maybe you had a good personality. But you can never forget how these people picked at you and poked at you. Maybe they made fun of your physical appearance. And it's amazing. It's amazing how we can recall. Maybe you're doing this right now. But we can recall almost verbatim those things that were said to us. And they're, they're like DVDs that just keep playing over and over and over in our minds. Hard to forget. Maybe some of you were hurt by teachers or coaches or counselors in school years. And, and it's been a long time. But you can still remember exactly what they said. We remember those hurts from the past. And they may stay in your mind forever. But instead of letting the wound gradually heal and maybe leave a slight scar, resentment picks at it. It picks at the scab and it replays the offense over and over and over again. And we keep a record of that. And we keep highlighting it in our mental ledger. Some of us may be like Shimei in our own homes. I mean, isn't it true that the people that have the most potential to hurt us the most are the people that we live the closest to? Maybe you had parents that you couldn't please. Maybe you were criticized constantly growing up. Maybe you heard the words, I'm so disappointed with you. Maybe you heard them regularly. And maybe it wasn't so much what they said, but what they didn't say. Maybe you were never affirmed, or maybe you had no one to encourage you. And it wounded you. And to this day, you're still trying to please them. 
Maybe you were wounded by an alcoholic father who terrorized you or an inconsistent mother and you never knew whether she was going to hug you or slug you. Maybe you had a brother or an uncle perhaps or, and he was the shimei in your life who physically and sexually abused you leaving incredible scars and emotional wounds. A lot, of, a lot of us here have been through divorce. And it's hard not to be resentful because your shimei is your ex-spouse. Job 19.19 19 says, All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. And it's really tough when the one you've made yourself vulnerable to, the one you thought loved you, now despises you. And you feel betrayed and wounded. And as a result, there are husbands and wives who live under the same roof who barely speak because their resentment has built up so much over the years. Or maybe you've been cheated out of some money or position at work. It's so easy to let resentment build up over a period of time. And bottom line, you know, all this resentment destroys relationships. And some of you are so bitter toward the shimei in your life that you don't speak to them. You have nothing to do with them. Even though they may be a close relative. Maybe you cross paths on a regular basis. But you're going to take your pride and your alienation to the grave with you. If you've ever had a close relative go through a divorce, you know the tendency is to divide camps. In order to be the friend of one, then you have to be an enemy to their enemy. Now, I'm not a Buddhist. I don't know much of what he said, but he did say one thing that's worth thinking about. He said, holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal in your bare hand with the intention of throwing it at someone. But you're always the one who gets burned. Someone has said resentment is like emotional suicide. It's self-inflicted because it destroys our personalities. And maybe, maybe you withdraw so far into your shell and you keep promising yourself that you're never going to let yourself become that close to anybody again because it hurts so much. Or maybe you become vengeful and joyless and bitter and nobody wants to be around you. Proverbs 17.22 says, A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones Martin Luther once got so upset over a situation that he was brooding and, and fussing for so long about it. One day his wife came downstairs wearing all black, top to bottom. And Martin Luther looked at him and said, who died? And his wife said, God has. And he said, God hasn't died. And he said, well, then live like it, she said. <laughs> live like it. And we're often reminded that God is still on the throne. We need to be reminded of that. That's why Job 5.2 says, resentment kills a fool, and envy slays the simple. Now, in John 21, there's a marvelous prototype of forgiveness. Jesus was wounded by one of his disciples named Simon Peter. And Peter was one of the three closest disciples to the Lord. On numerous occasions, it would be Jesus kind of going away with him. He took Peter, James, and John. And someplace they were in a certain town, he would take you know, Peter, James, and John. And even though Simon Peter was kind of impetuous, and he was, the Lord loved him. Oh, how he trusted him. 
even though it was Simon Peter who once blurted out, we know who you are, Jesus. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. But Jesus uh, told him at that point, you're right, Simon. He kind of wished he hadn't said so much right that early in his ministry, but he said, that's fine, and I'm going to trust you one day with the keys to the kingdom. But Jesus also tried to warn Peter that near the end, this impetuous disciple would face severe temptation. But Peter would hear none of that. He was not buying that. He said, Lord, if everyone else were to deny you, it wouldn't be me. I would die for you. But on that chaotic, pressure-filled night when Jesus was arrested, everything unraveled. And Peter was loyal for a while, following Jesus right up to the courtyard of the high priest. But in the midst of this hostile environment, somebody noticed Peter and accused him of being a follower of Jesus. And you know what he did? He quickly denied it. He said, not me. In fact, he denied he was a follower of Jesus. And, and three times Peter was confronted, and three times he denied any connection to Jesus Christ. And as Jesus were being taken away by the Romans, the Bible tells us at the exact moment of Peter's third denial, Luke 22, 6, Luke 22, 61, the Lord turned. Here's Jesus being led away, but he turned and he knew just where Peter was. He looked him straight in the eye. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you are going to disown me three times. And he went outside, Peter went outside, and he wept bitterly. He felt terrible about that denial. But the denial came at a time when Jesus was needing so much the support of his friends. And that emotional wound may have hurt worse than some of the physical wounds that he was already beginning to experience that was going to get worse. But what I want us to see today is how Jesus dealt with that hurt feeling and how he worked to restore his relationship to Simon Peter. Remember when the women went to the tomb on the first Easter Sunday morning and they discovered the tomb was empty and the body of Jesus was gone and there was an angel sitting there in the tomb. Remember what the angel said. This is Mark 16, 6. He said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified, but he has risen. He is not here. See the place where his body was laid. Wow. But go now and tell his disciples and Peter. Notice the emphasis here. This is in the scriptures itself. Go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Now, don't miss this. Here it was Jesus who sent this angel, and one of the very first things that the Lord did following his resurrection was to work to, beginning, to begin repairing the relationship with Simon Peter. I mean, can you picture that? Can you picture him? Can you picture this dejected disciple sitting in the upper room just shortly thereafter, feeling like a complete, utter failure, when all of a sudden these women rush into the room saying, He's alive. 
Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. And we saw an angel. And the angel said to tell the disciples, and oh yeah, especially you, Peter, that he would see you as he went ahead into Galilee. Now, can you, can you imagine this? Can you imagine what Peter, would he have jumped up? He was impetuous to begin with. Didn't you, can't you see him just jumping up and say, did he really, did he really mention my name? Could it be he still wants me? Wow. And then we see that Jesus made some kind of special appearance to Simon Peter. 1 Corinthians 15 lists all of the resurrection appearances of Christ. And in verse 5, it says that he appeared to Peter. That's all it said. Doesn't elaborate. But it was obvious that Jesus had made an effort to immediately fix this thing between him and Peter. Now look at John 21. This is one of the final recorded appearances of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. Verse 3. We see the apostle Peter says, well, I'm going to go out to, out to fish. Now they were waiting. Now you know, if you know Peter at all from Scripture, he didn't let the grass grow under him very much. Another thing about Peter, he was always sticking his foot in his mouth. All the time, constantly doing it. And I know none of us understand these concepts. But he said, I've got to go, I've got to do something. I've got to go out to fish. So he told him, he said, and then they said, we'll go with you. So they went out into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus was standing on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, and he said, friends, have you any fish? And they said, no. So he said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And when they did... They were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that was John, he said to Peter, he said, Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and he jumped into the water. He could not wait to be in the presence of Jesus. And once they got to shore, they discovered, here's Jesus already fixing breakfast for them. What a good Savior. I mean, really. <laughs> He's fixing breakfast. I bet they had waffles. You know, I love waffles. But anyway, verse 15 says, when they'd finished eating, here we go. Jesus now says to Simon Peter, he says, Simon, son of John, he said, do you truly love me more than these I think this is a subtle kind of reminder of Peter's boast that even if everybody else would deny you, I won't do that. And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, well, I want you to feed my lambs. But again, notice again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, verse 16, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then verse 17 says, and the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do, do you love me? Now, we don't know what actually happened, but I, I wonder if Jesus gave Simon an opportunity to affirm his love three times because that's how many times Peter had denied that he even knew him. But the Bible says this, we know for sure, Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And then he said, and then follow me. 
One of my favorite authors is Philip Yancey, and he has defined forgiveness as releasing my right to hurt you back if you hurt me. And that's good, that's good. But Christian forgiveness goes a step farther than that. We are to relinquish our right to retaliate. And that's, that's good. But it also means we should attempt to restore the relationship to its former status. A lot of us could get, okay, well, I kind of forgive what you did, but I'm still chewing on it and I'm thinking about it. But no, this, this, this restore puts everything back the way it was. Jesus told Peter he was going to give him the keys to the kingdom. And then here's Peter. I mean, think about it. He'd blown it big time. And Jesus had relinquished his right to retaliate. But he also gave back to Peter the responsibility, the keys to the kingdom that he was going to need as he was going to be a great pastor and preacher of the gospel. He told him he still wanted him to feed the sheep. He's saying, I still want you to follow me, Peter. And you're going to be preaching the very first gospel sermon to open the door for the church on the day of Pentecost. You're going to be the guy up there preaching. And that's what happened. And he did. He did. Chapter 3 of the book of Acts tells us all about it. You see, Jesus was never, ever willing, or never would he, keep a record of wrongs. Now, from this biblical example, I want you to see a prescription for you and me to release maybe our own resentments. And you may have brought them with you this morning. Now, of course, the very best, I guess, prescription is just prevention. Just don't allow yourself to become resentful in the first place. But when you do, and we do, we sin every day. The Bible says in Micah 7, 19, that God will, have a, he all, will again have compassion on us. He will hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You see, Jesus didn't bring up Peter's past mistakes. He didn't say, now, Peter, you know, don't, don't forget. Now, you denied me three times. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, he said, I can't believe you did it. He didn't say that. No, he didn't say, I've had it up to here with you, Peter. You are the same guy who on the Mount of Transfiguration tried to put me in the same level as Moses and Elijah. You're the same guy who tried to tempt me not to go to the cross. And don't forget, you're the same guy who didn't have enough faith to walk on water. I don't think Jesus would have said that. But anyway, you're the same guy who really embarrassed me in the Garden of Gethsemane when you cut off that that soldier's ear. Yeah, impetuous, hard to manage, Peter. No, he never brought up all that because love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And if you and I are going to get along with people, which is what we've been talking about in this whole series, how do you love your neighbor as yourself? How do you set a good Christian example? How do you reflect and represent our Lord Jesus well in your day-to-day experiences and your jobs and your work or whatever? If we're going to do that, we've got to remember that love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And you are going to get along with people whenever somebody hurts you. You just got to learn to bury it in the sea of forgetfulness, as the Bible says, and go on. Peter once asked, how often should I forgive somebody? And Jesus said, seven times. Or oh, Peter said that, I'm sorry. He said, seven times, is seven enough? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And that's when Peter liked to have a heart attack. Because, because it wasn't his nature to think in those terms. And you know, for some of us, 
Sadly, it's not our nature to think in those terms either. It hurts sometimes. And we can't let resentment build up. Somebody saw a bumper sticker on the back of a truck that said, I'm a Pearl Harbor survivor, which was fine. But what was unique about it was that the guy was driving a Toyota. <laughs> Don't let resentment creep in. We need to put some things behind us and go on. But what happens when you have been hurt in the past and the wound is still so fresh and the struggle with bitterness and resentfulness is going on? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you five things, five steps to deal with this. And this is where all the faithful church members will reach for something to write on because they don't. There they go. I see the writing going on. Good job. Good job. The rest of you just never forget anything, so you don't have to. But this is important. Number one, number one, you've got to admit the problem. You've got to admit the problem. Jesus confronted Peter with the issue, and we will not be released from our resentment if we deny these issues may exist in our lives today. If you say, well, no problem when there's a problem, then you're in denial. Rick Warren once wrote, revealing your feeling is the beginning of healing. People can go for a lifetime just covering things up and you know, not dealing with it. Job 7.11 reads, Therefore I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my soul. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job's being honest, and we need to be honest too. So admit the problem. Number two, you have to will to forgive. You make a decision of your will to forgive. And you may be sitting there thinking, well, what if I don't feel like forgiving? Well, Sorry, it's not a matter of your feelings. It has nothing to do with your feelings. It's a matter of obedience. It's obedience to your Lord's command. Harry Emerson Fosdeck once told that uh, when he was a boy, he was lying in bed one morning, and he overheard a conversation from his mom and dad. And his dad said to his mother at the breakfast table, tell Harry that he can mow the grass today if he feels like it. And then as, as he left, he, heard, he called back in and said, and tell Harry he better feel like it. <laughs> you see, for a Christian, you better feel like it because forgiveness is, is non-optional for you and me. It's never a matter of whether you feel like it or not. It's a matter of a command from your Heavenly Father. Mark eleven twenty five records these words from Jesus. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your heavenly Father will maybe forgive your sins. Forgiveness is not an option for the Christian. It's not an option for the believers. It is a command. And I doubt that Jesus felt like going to the cross, but he did it because he was obedient to the will of the Father. By the way, do you recall the question Jesus asked the paralytic who was on the pool of Bethesda there? Remember what he asked him? Here's this guy been laying there forever, 38 years. What did Jesus say? Do you want to get well? And the guy just looked at him. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. That's a Kentucky paraphrase. But, but, but you know, can, can you remember this? I mean, do you want to get well? That's a big deal. Are you really ready? Or are you like nursing this grudge? Or are you like feeling sorry for yourself? If you want to get well, then you will to forgive. Number three, not only do you admit the problem, will to forgive, number three, you take the initiative. You take 
initiated. Jesus initiated this whole conversation with Peter. You know what we, we Peter was doing what we were doing. We didn't want, one we'd, we'd hurt so badly, we don't want to see them. You know, we don't want to have a conversation with them. But no. He said, go and tell the disciples, and don't forget to tell Peter. That's what Jesus said. Most of the time, we would just rather sit back and wait, or, well, we'll pray that the other person recognizes how much they've wronged us, and they, they repent and correct and bring us silver dollars. Then they don't have to do anything. It's totally different. We want them to come and fall on our knees and beg for our forgiveness. But that seldom ever happens, by the way, if at all. Most of the time, if we're resentful, we have to determine to forgive, and then we have to take the initiative ourselves. Matthew 18, 15 is pretty clear. If your brother sins against you, okay, you ready? If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Now, if he listens to you, you will have won your brother over. You go and then gently and tactfully, but you and I are to take the initiative. And well, what if he doesn't? What if he's not one of Here's what you do with, with number four. You release the offender to God. You just release him. Release the offender to God. Number, Romans 12, 19 reads, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written as mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And when you begin to forgive and you will to forgive, you're saying, God, I'm going to trust you to deal with those who have hurt me. I'm not going to be the judge. Listen to Psalm 109. David wrote this when he was really struggling with resentment. Verse 1, O God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. For wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. But I am a man of prayer. Appoint an evil man to oppose them. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from the ruined homes. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him. May no one take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off and their names blotted out from the next generation. Aren't you glad he's a man of prayer? Goodness gracious, what's going on here? But notice this, understand it, don't miss this. David is confessing to God. And what he's saying, is he said, I'm really bitter. I'm really hurt here. I admit it. But God, I'm going to release it to you. And by the way, Lord, here's a few suggestions of what you can do. You know, that's not in the Bible either, but anyway. But you get our point. You know, early in our marriage, Ruth Graham once said it was a great day in her life when she realized it was not her job to change her husband. It was my job to love Billy and God's job to change him. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And then finally, number five, you've got to be willing to believe by faith, 
that forgiveness is possible, that it can take place. Believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, working in your life, forgiveness can take place. You know, our Lord went to the cross because of our sin. And if Jesus Christ could forgive you and me for everything we have done against him, then you and I, in his power, we have the capacity to forgive those who have hurt us. So why not begin today, be like Jesus who prayed while he was being crucified. Father, forgive them, for they really don't know what they're doing. Always remember, it's the love of our Lord Jesus that keeps no record of wrongs, or we would all be in a really tough spot. Amen. Jesus didn't keep records, neither should we. Oh, Father, this is such an appropriate moment for us to come around your table to take the communion, take the juice of the the grape that represents your broken, or your blood, rather, and then the, the bread, the cracker that represents the body that was broken on the cross. And, Lord, we... We want to come before you at this moment with our conscience free and clear. It's tough for us to humble ourselves and remember what you did on the cross and and have this special memorial in our service. It's tough to then go out the door mad as a hornet at somebody that had hurt us and did wrong. So, Lord, help us be more like you. And as we come around this table today, as we partake of the emblems, Remember, help us remember what it's for. Your broken body, your spilled blood, and all of the wickedness that took place on that day, all the abuse, so that you could go to the cross for everyone in this room and everyone in the whole world. What an amazing love. And Father, as we partake of the Lord's Supper now in the quietness of this hour, Help us remember well what you have already done for us so that we can reflect well on what we're going to do for others. In Jesus' name, amen.